Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Long, long river of time You've healed me Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Gavi. And I am cult survivor and cult expert, Sadie Carpenter. We are extremely excited to share with you the episode that we have today. Earlier this week, we sat down with Rachel Peach and Eric Skorzynski, who are two contributors, two people prominently featured in the new documentary that's on Investigation Discovery and HBO Max. This documentary is called Let Us Pray. It's about the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the same cult that Sadie was raised in. Um, it's it's really exciting for us to have this conversation. It was it was yeah, it was so enjoyable. It was there were laughs, there were tears. I am so excited to get to share this conversation with our listeners. There were a couple of bombshells that dropped within this that I mean, like, yeah, it was a lot. It was more than I expected. Chilling stuff, but like chilling in a good way. I yeah. think um, I, I don't want to keep you guys any longer. Uh, we're going to get right into that. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, then there's a few things that you can do to support us. You can subscribe to our Patreon where there is an extended and un 
uncensored and ad-free version of most of our episodes. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. This past week or so since the documentary came out, we've had a lot of new people joining both of those places and, and joining in the discussion. And we think that that's absolutely fantastic. That's really exciting for us to see. Yeah, it absolutely is. If you are newly joining us over on Facebook, permanent reminder to make sure you answer the membership questions to get into the Facebook group. Our group is such a great space. Those membership questions help us keep everybody on the same page so that it continues to be an awesome online space for deconstructors, people who are not deconstructed because they were never fundamentalist, but they're interested in that world. Uh, we love the kind of place we've been able to build. So make sure you answer those membership questions to get into the Facebook group. Yeah, it's a, really a place where people seem to have a lot of respectful and thought-provoking and also really emotionally vulnerable conversations. It's totally awesome. And, you know, it's also a place where we can just, you know, make jokes about religious humor and share some memes, stuff like that. So highly recommend that you guys check that out. And without further ado, oh, make sure you get our your votes in on which Christmas merch you want to see, because uh, I want to get that design uploaded sooner rather than later uh, to the, the Threadless shop, to our merch shop. So if you are an offering tier or higher patron, then you can vote on between two merch designs they're both designed by me and i just uh make sure you get your votes in so that we can start offering them yeah let's thank the patrons if we have three uno dos trace i gave it all to your patrons melora king melissa mosley and todd dale on behalf of his lovely wife madeline antrim thank you guys so much for contributing at the i gave it all tier I can't believe that people actually joined the I Gave It All tier. We started it as a joke, but people actually joined it. So here we are. And thank you guys so much. Yeah, big thank you to the I Gave It All tier patrons. And thank you to our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Your names are Alex P., Ali Allen, Am Israel Chai, Anisha Patel, Autumn of Our Discontent, Brittany, Krissa Walker, Crystal Patterson, Dan the Trans Man, Dora J, Eleanor Donahue, Hannah Ross, Hannah Montana, Hoosier X Fundy, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Henwood, Kay Turwe, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Marsha Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Melissa G. Melissa G. Hi, Melissa. Oh, welcome. Rob the Methodist, Chartuterie, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and contributing at the Faith Promise Missions tier of our Patreon. We love you guys so much. Fantastic. Yeah, big thank you to all of our I Gave It All and Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, to everybody who supports us on Patreon, to everybody who we were your number one podcast in Spotify wrapped for the year. That was really cool to see. 
Um, so to many. everybody who supports us on social media, recommends us to friends and family, downloads our episodes every week. All of those things add up and we have a platform because of our listeners. Thank you so much. And I think we just need the TW and then we can get right into our conversation with Eric and with Rachel. What is there not a TW for on this episode? Dude, everything. Yeah. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid graphic detail unless it's necessary to the story that we're telling on that particular episode. If we do feel that that detail is needed, we give the audience a heads up before we go into detail. This episode centers on child sexual assault, PTSD, and the rape culture and abuse culture in the independent fundamental Baptist church. We are talking about all of the TWs from the Let Us Pray documentary. Uh, We are talking about many different kinds of abuse, all of the different kinds of abuse in this episode. Thank you. And without further ado, let's get into it. We are here with Rachel Peach Eric Skorzynski, two stars of Let Us Pray, a ministry of scandals available now on Investigation Discovery and HBO Max. How are you guys doing today? We are doing wonderful. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you here. No, I'm, I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm excited to be in Let Us Pray. I'm even more excited to say this is my second time on the Leaving Eden podcast. So thanks for having me back. It's a very high honor. Now, I know our listeners are probably somewhat familiar with Eric's work over on the Preacher Boys podcast. Rachel, would you introduce yourself to our listeners and give whatever synopsis of your story and how you got to this point that you would like to give? So my name is Rachel Peach. I grew up in the IFB. I think I spent about maybe 16 years in the IFB and graduated from private Christian school at Faith Baptist Church in Voldemar, California, and then went on to become an alumni of Hiles Anderson College, Go Lions. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and then I met my husband there, and it was basically right after I graduated, maybe even like months before, I was like, yeah, this is this is not gonna work out for me. And we left um First Baptist, because we were still going to church there. And uh, we ended up in like a few small other Baptist churches in that area. And then finally, just like, yeah, this is not, this is not the life that we're going to want. And then give it a couple years later in 2018, I ended up coming forward about um, the sexual abuse that I had experienced from my youth pastor at uh, Faith Baptist Church in Wildemar. And that was not really my, that was not in my plans. I was kind of put in a position where I kind of had to deal with it. And that led to a criminal case and filing a lawsuit against my church and kind of accidentally (laughs) becoming an advocate. And mainly because we didn't have anybody else. And at that time, 
and there really wasn't anyone really speaking up about any of this. And it was also a situation where there was an attempted, well, there was a cover up with my abuse and not wanting to report it. So it was, I, we had to go public and that was not, I did not want to do that. And now all of a sudden I'm on TV (laughs) and it's been a wild journey and I don't regret it, but, um, it's, it's really cool to see my growth though, because I went from, I, I, this was, I was planning on taking this to the grave. This was never supposed to be talked about. And it took one person and it wasn't me, someone else wanting to come forward. And that started this domino effect that we couldn't stop. And now I'm here. Well, I'm so thankful that you did choose to tell your story. Thank you. Uh, Eric, can you reintroduce yourself to our listeners? Um, How did you get to starring in the number seven or higher documentary on HBO Max this week? Number seven, baby. Yeah, I love Rachel just said the accidental. Yeah, God's perfect number. I love Rachel just said the accidental. Um, No, I really like what Rachel said about being an accidental advocate, because I don't think anybody plans out like, hey, here's the path. And this is all this elaborate ruse to get on uh, a four episode docuseries on uh, HBO Max at some point. Um, For me, I mean, I grew up, I was born, literally born and raised within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. My parents were on staff um, at a church and Christian school that was on the same campus. So my entire life from kindergarten till the time I was a senior in high school was all within the same L-shaped building in Banning, California. Uh, if you don't know where Banning, California is, it's literally called the pass area because people would pass through it to get to Palm Springs. We were also 45 minutes from Wildemar, which is a fun Rachel connection because our schools played basketball and football against each other. So grew up West Coast fundy and uh, really was bought into the movement and loved everything about fundamentalism and the church and loved loved it all thought we had all the answers thought nothing bad happened in our movement ha 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 jokes on me you know by the time i was 16 uh or 16 or 17 it was 2011 uh predator was shuffled from a church in northern california to our church in southern california i was the first person to find out because i googled him and i went to the staff and to my parents and everybody basically gave me the cold shoulder at best and were furious at me at worst for um, you know, being bitter, attacking the church, all this sort of thing. Uh, fast forward, I joined a missions organization uh, for a while. I was in a media company for a while, spent time in churches in 13 different states and three different countries, got to really travel around and see many different stripes of the IFB and uh, eventually found my way out of it, long story short, and uh, came across the story of Cameron Giovanelli back in 2019. It echoed the story that I had found as a teenager in the church and had tried to get the word out about. And it just pissed me off to no end that these stories were still happening in the exact same way. And that pastors were raising money on church letterhead and through their email list for predators. And I decided in my car after work to start a project to expose independent fundamental Baptist pedophiles. Um, And that's started in 2020. And three years later, here we are. That's a very short version. Your your podcast, to me, it feels like has gone unexpected directions. Like it has gotten bigger than just 
pedophiles in the IFB. Yeah. And it's now led to this documentary. Paris Hilton was on your show. What is her what is her thing that she says? That's hot. <laughs> That's hot. Even I was on the internet today and I guess Paris Hilton's got a new book out and she's talking about the troubled teen industry. And that's one of your pet topics as well. I don't want to say pet topics because that makes it sound, um, that feels a little bit pejorative, but like that's, that's one of your big focuses as well. It was all stuff. I mean, the more I've done the show, there's been two factors. One, I've gotten older. So I'm now the age that my youth pastors were in high school. And so some of the things that I thought were normal as a adult who has matured like a normal adult now, you know, I realized how crazy some of these things were. And I realized how crazy people were that they sent their kids in vans with these people um, out for all night activities and had me like, you know, it's it's just there's that level where it's like as I'm getting older and further outside of it, I realize how crazy things are. But also things like the troubled teen industry, we had a former staff member from Agape who worked at our school. We had people who would come in and present these homes. So like again, the further I get out of it, like the first time I talked to, you know, Amanda Householder, I'm going, Oh my God, like Agape Agape, like the great place that we used to hear about. And it's like, oh no. <laughs> like it's a mess. So yeah, there's been a lot and it's led to weird things. Like Paris Hilton literally left me like a bunch of voice messages after that episode. And I was like, what is life? This is a very bizarre situation. I remember that Eric. Cause I was so jealous of you. <laughs> I know. So I kept sending you all you did, of them. And then she followed me on Twitter <laughs> and I freaked out. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. In our last episode, when we Sadie and I discussed our like personal thoughts on it, Sadie told me she knew what went on in the, at Agape, but you were under the impression that it was like, oh, a, a loving place, like a, a, a place of kindness. I mean, the former staff member is not going to tell you it's a cesspool of abuse, you know? So like, I, I just got the brochures and the these young men were going to go to prison or be dead, or they could go to mm -hmm. Agape, which would change their life. And then you start realizing when you hear stories, like people get sent there for sneaking off to the movie theater and they also get sent there for being involved in a gang where they're in gang violence and trading drugs. It's like, these are not all equivalent situations here, but you've got six-year-olds who are like, have a bad attitude. And then you have people that like legitimately probably should be <laughs> visited by law enforcement at some point. So it's kind of a weird. But you, you know. never visited. You've never oh, been no, no, to no, Agape. No. Nope. See, that's the thing. I was geographically so much closer because I grew up in the St. Louis area. That's an easy half-day drive from Agape. I had visited as a kid. My dad was a guest preacher at Agape one time. Sheesh. Maybe maybe twice. Once, twice. More times. I don't know. Hmm. And so I have been, I had been on Agape campus at least once. I think it was twice around eight years old, around 11 years old. And I had seen it with my own eyes. So I knew exactly what went on in that sort of place. Uh, Rachel, can you tell us, I want to hear more about the formation of the blind eye movement. Can you tell us about how did it feel um, connecting to people who had similar experiences and could actually form a support network for the first time? Especially when it comes to abuse and especially with religious abuse when it comes to sexual trauma, you feel like you are the only one that has had this experience. 
And meeting other people that have also gone through that is a very weird feeling. (laughs) And so connecting with other people like Ruthie and... um, I mean, I've known Kathy all growing up, but obviously I didn't know that. We've never talked about that side of things. And so it's one of those kind of things where it's like, if you know, you know, kind of conversations where it's very, it could be very dark. It could be very heavy and you don't have to worry about what someone else is going to feel or, and I'm definitely someone where I, I worry about how you're going to react to this sad thing I'm going to say. And so I look out for your emotions instead of mine, where it is connecting with other survivors that have gone through that. You don't have to worry about any of that. And so it was, it was so empowering being able to even just like spend a few days with Ruthie and Amanda and Kathy and April. Like it was like, we've always known each other and we just get each other and that we don't experience that a lot. I'm so glad that you got to have that experience. Did you, was there anybody you met for the first time as part of filming for the documentary? Um, Yes. So I did not know Ruthie and I did not know Amanda or Nanette. And so we all actually, when we filmed in California, they flew Ruthie out. And so we spent a few days with her filming there, which was cool. And oh, and Amanda was there too. I'm sorry. Sorry, Amanda. (laughs) She was there too. And Amanda's like one of the funniest people. And I I wish (laughs) that I wish that people like took that away is that she makes me laugh so much from doing absolutely nothing. I just think she's the funniest person. Um, And so it was it was really cool meeting both of them and then being able to meet Nanette uh, when we were in Michigan. What was it like for you being contacted to be part of Let Us Pray? It was always actually kind of something that was in the works, but it was started and initiated pre-COVID. So then once COVID happened, everything just went on pause. So we were like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And then once it got rolling, it was definitely a very scary feeling, but I I wanted to be a part of it, especially too, because Kathy's what happened with Kathy is so horrendous. And then how her story was used against her without her knowledge <laughs> is even more evil and horrendous. And it's like, how could I not be a part of it to not like that? That story needs to be told for her as well. I mean, obviously, I want to tell my story, but it, the way it just feeds into hers is just unbelievable, honestly. The way that we saw Kathy's abuse being used as a weapon, I mean, that really says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. And especially when she has no, no idea that he's doing this for, I mean, he worked there for 20 years <laughs> and he was able to use that story for 20 years without her knowing is, it's just, it's disgusting. It's so disgusting. Freaking Matt Walsh. Um, sorry to bring his cursed name into this, but he, he wants, he wants to ask the question, what is a woman? And I was watching this documentary and I feel like I found the answer to his question. Throughout this documentary, we see you survivors, women who have banded together to not only make this documentary, but help other people as well. And throughout the documentary, there's this through line of, I am mourning my own abuse, 
but I am also mourning that I can't save others. Or it's almost putting, helping other people, saving other people, rescuing other people from this abuse on the same level as mourning your own abuse. Like you just did it right there, Rachel. You put Kathy's story on an even playing field with your own story and protecting and promoting her story is equivalent almost in the way you were speaking about it to your story. And I think that to me is womanhood. Like that's what it is. We can stop asking that stupid question now. Oh, absolutely. And that was, that was just so inspiring for me to see. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, I don't know um, if you saw the whole production team for this documentary was all women. It was a entirely female um, production director, everything. And so it was just like another little cherry on top of empowerment. <laughs> yeah, it was um, a lot of women. And, and Eric. Eric. Who is welcome. <laughs> and Eric. <laughs> um, Eric, what was, what was your process of getting contacted to be part of this documentary? What was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have reached out and said like, hey, we're working on a book, we're working on this. And, and um, you know, and nothing's come of it and some have gotten lost in the in the shuffle of things and um so when they reached out initially um it wasn't the first time somebody reached out saying they were working on something um but i'm always happy to help because i want these kind of stories out there um the first conversations we had were in 2020 uh, i believe yeah it was 2020 it was a couple months into me doing the show and they basically just sat down for like two hours and just asked me for history lessons on the ifb and they asked about everything from who Jack Hiles was to why did people swallow goldfish, which um, the producer was extremely interested in um, and kept asking, like, I have so many texts of, do you have footage of people swallowing goldfish? We need footage of people swallowing goldfish. <laughs> um, you know, but they asked me a ton. They reached back out a couple months later and said, hey, can we record a Zoom interview with you to cut together a kind of mock um, pilot episode that we can send to studios to get funding? So I did that a couple months later, then it's, Hey, come out to Kansas city, Missouri flew out, did my four hour interview and like a little show and tell thing, did that podcast interview with Ruthie that's in the documentary. Um, and then pit stop in Wildemar for a protest at faith, which was super cool pit stop in Michigan for a lot of the final episodes of the series. That was, that was like the most incredibly powerful experience through the whole thing. But yeah, it was just a really weird process where like it would go silent and then there'd be a lot of activity and then it would go silent. And then it was just like three years later, you're sitting there going like, oh my God, this hits like investigation discovery in like three days. What What's going on? And then it comes out and it's like, it's just, it's just still feels surreal in a lot of ways. To, and especially the fact now that like watching the series, it's like... Yes, there's a lot in it crammed into it. I think as much as they could, I'm surprised they fit so much in it, but it's also something where like over these last few years through the podcast and through filming, I've gotten to know Rachel super well, I've gotten to know Kathy. I've had Kathy on the show probably three or four times through her process. Um, I've gotten to know April well, I've gotten to know Amanda well, and like sat in the courtroom with her. So like seeing that stuff play out on screen, there's so much history layered behind it where like that second part of the of the premiere was like it was a high high of like wow this is out there it was a low low of like man it sucks that all these people i know have gone through such similar experiences and you're watching people that have had 
two years of prison time, three years of prison time. It was a, it was a reignition of like, Oh, there's a lot of work to do. Um, so again, it was a, it was a high, high, low, low. Um, but there's still so much work to be done. And I'm just, I hope that that feeling is what everybody who watches it is left with is there's a lot more to go from here. Yeah. That was one thing that really jumped out at me was, uh, Paul Fox got well. He got two years, right? Yes, he did. Uh, yeah, it's two years. Paul Fox gets two years, and then Aaron Willand gets eleven and a half to forty. Rachel, do you remember when when the sentencing for Aaron Willand happened? It was either the judge or it was the prosecutor. One of them said, "You're up for parole legally in like I think it was eleven years." Um, but they said something about that district had never had someone actually get parole. Do you remember who said that? I I want to say it was the prosecutor, but I I could be wrong. But I, I I think it was the DA that said that. Yeah, he basically said like he's screwed. Like yeah. he's going to be there for forty. He said we've never had someone, especially with a crime of this nature, get parole. Which you know, say what you will about conservative states, but sometimes that's a that plays a nice part in some of these stories. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about the pretext phone call that allowed Rachel's abuser to be put behind bars. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. What did you want to get to, into in the documentary that you, there just wasn't time for? Or what did you talk about that didn't quite make the final cut? I mean, for me, I can only speak to the stuff that I filmed. I mean, there's a lot, right? Like, there's... And I think that's the biggest, like, if there's a criticism, which I don't think the people saying it are criticizing. I think it's a compliment that people are saying, oh, I wish there was more episodes. I wish they covered more churches, more colleges. The truth is you just can't. Like, 
I mean, obviously I've been doing a podcast for 250 episodes. Like there's a lot of content you can, you can cover um, a lot of stories to be told. Um, I think the biggest things for me is my, my position on the whole thing is there could have been a lot more, but like, I wouldn't change anything about the way that it was actually presented. The only thing that I kind of wish had been in there, if I could change really anything from like my section of it is when you watch it, Jack Hiles is often referred to as the founder of the independent fundamental Baptist movement. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so, and, and I think, so in my interview, the way that I described that was he is essentially the founder of the independent fundamental Baptist movement. And one of the things that I said, and I remembered saying as I was watching the doc was I said that Jack Hiles is the Walt Disney of fundamentalism. He took fundamentalism as it existed with J Frank Norris and all of these guys and made it the brand that we know today. And the only reason, you know, I still think it's accurate to say he's the founder of it because it exists in his image at this point. Um, but I, I know that's an easy, low-hanging shot that people can take uh, who are loyalists to the IFB. But again, there's like little things like that. But like I said, I don't even want to say that because I wouldn't change anything about how they put it together. Like it's always a conversation of like, yeah, they could have put this in too, but I'm just really, you know, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm really happy with the way they structured it. And I'm surprised at how much sense it makes given how much of a cluster <laughs> the IFB is to try to figure out. Well, it's also better to leave a documentary thinking, man, I wish there were yeah, more than I wish there was hours more, you know? I mean, I know that when we were watching it, there were a couple of moments in there because you know we we talk about this for hours and hours and hours a week and we've done this for years mm-hmm. is and and Sadie lived it and I've just researched it but there's so many moments in there where there it just feels like oh that's a little easter egg yeah that's a little like when they showed Steven Anderson on screen for about 10 <laughs> seconds and we're like yeah. oh god are we about to get Steven Anderson and we're like yeah. no we're not we're not getting Steven Anderson cuz that could be its own docu series but just a couple other things like when they mentioned the poison yeah. Or, yes, it was so quick. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. But but I mean, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes of all time is that perfection is not when there's nothing left to add. It's when there's nothing left to take away. And I feel like this really hits that where it's like, there's nothing left. Like there's nothing you would, I would take out of this. There's a billion things that yes, you could add. But I think, again, it's better, like you said, to leave people wanting a lot more and hopefully it prompts people to go research a little bit you know i totally agree um i wish that these companies that make documentaries would buy an eight-part miniseries rather than a four-part miniseries because shiny happy people was also done as a four-part miniseries and we had the same kind of feeling about shiny happy people there it did a really good job of summarizing there was just a lot more that could have gone in but the the companies who make these things they know what people have the attention span for right and and i was really happy with what did make it in uh rachel was there anything that you know if there were an extra five minutes on the documentary that you would have put in um, so same with Eric, I, I walked away feeling so satisfied and so happy with it. And I don't think people realize that none of us had seen it until it's airing with everybody <laughs> else. And so 
we went into it not knowing what we're going to see. And that was a very nerve wracking feeling. A lot of phone calls with Rachel <laughs> about that okay. right before. And I walked away feeling extremely proud of it. And I, I like the feeling of people ending it and disappointed that there wasn't more than it dragging or feeling bored or I don't know. And I didn't get that feeling whatsoever. Selfishly, the one thing that I do wish would have been able to be included, but I know they probably couldn't with liability or whatever, is with my abuser, Victor Montero, on screen, it looked like he only abused two girls um, with me and April participating. Um, But in the police report, there was close to, I think, 12 or 13 girls that came forward to the police. And I do wish that that would have been included to show just what a monster he really was. Um, not that, I mean, mm-hmm. two is already, one is already horrible. Um, but I mean, just knowing the magnitude of how many victims he had and it never stopped. It was always consistent the entire time he worked there. Um, I do wish that that would have been included, but also I get it. It's just April and I participating. And so that was easier to explain. Um, I had tweeted out when you hear a name dropped in the documentary and your heart just sinks. Um, that was, it was his name. It was Victor Montero that I heard one of you said his mm-hmm. name and I was familiar with your story. I was not as familiar with April's story, but I had heard you on Preacher Boys and knew exactly who that was and exactly what he did. And my heart just dropped. And that was the one that just got me. Despite the fact that they couldn't put the multitude of victims that he had in the documentary, I did think that they did a good job of showing that abusers have a process that they go through. It's very systematic. Well, it's grooming. One moment that really stood out to me was when Amanda was talking about her time at Circle of Hope, and there was another girl there who had been abused and she could see the grooming behavior beginning again. And she said, no, I'm not going through this again. And that's what made them decide to run away. Mm -hmm. It really goes to show, I think how systemic this is in the IFB. And that was one thing I really appreciated about the documentary. Yeah. You can't, it's undeniable. That's what I kept saying is like, you, you can't walk away from this and say, and this is a conversation I had before I agreed to be in it the conversations I had in like the probably four hours of discussion before actually being part of it or signing up for it was like, what's the angle? Is this going to get brushed off as a hit piece? And like watching it, there is no way you can walk away and say, this is a hit piece. This is sloppy journalism. This is just agenda driven. It, it, it is a very well produced and well orchestrated like piece of journalism. And it's undeniable how connected these people are. And the visuals of them connecting with church and the circles and the timelines, it is a beautiful, simplistic way of showing a very complex situation that's like, again, it's undeniable. Like, this stuff happens. You can't walk away unless you're completely trying to be blind to it. Yeah. And as somebody who researches the IFB, like, that is what I do. I knew that a lot of things in the documentary would be things that I already knew about. Um, Oh, the IFB has really strict modesty rules. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I knew that. I appreciate seeing it portrayed on 
<clears throat> portrayed on the documentary, but I did, yes, I did know about that beforehand. The things that surprised me were a lot of those connections. I did not know about Dave Hiles being connected to Circle of Hope at all. Yeah. And I did not know about the network of abusers in the California churches um, kind of centering on Bruce Goddard's church. What do you guys think is going on there right now? Do you think they're having like big PR meetings trying to <laughs> to, to figure out how to do damage? Do you control? think they're so miserable? <laughs> I really want them to be miserable. I'll let Rachel take that one. Have they hired a crisis management? Uh, <laughs> or <laughs> so, I mean, I their know. MO from the, I mean, this has been going on. You have to remember since 2018. So almost six years now. And his MO from day one is acting like it, nothing's happening. Everything's fine. It's business as usual. I mean, obviously we're not seeing the behind the scenes meetings, but on the surface, everything looks great there. It's, and I, I, at first that was very jarring because I'm like, okay, I'm like barely staying alive right now. <laughs> and you're just, it's just a Wednesday for you. And I mean, I, I, I'm way past that now, but I, because they used to have like a, they used to have a Facebook up and conveniently up until June of 2018. <laughs> and, so they don't, they're not, they don't have any kind of social media presence. It's nothing like that. It's just everything is business as usual. His morning videos. I mean, you can tell when he's stressed, but it's still vague enough that it's like, oh, it could be something else. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm done holding my breath for any kind of apology or acknowledgement of any of this. <laughs> Are they broadcasting the or, or live streaming the Wednesday night church services? So actually, we noticed last night it used to be a video, and now it's just audio. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting change. Yeah. So, and I'm sure it's because he found out all of his videos were on are now on HBO Max, <laughs> and so <laughs> it's there's no video; it's only audio. It's so indicative of the the weakness and the fake strength of the IFB that John Wilkerson will come out and do a sad music, heartbroken apology video because he allowed a man with long hair to speak from the pulpit and he's so sorry for breaking your trust. And there's no apology for actual crimes, um, actual horrors committed. In the so, IFB. I thought that the actual crime in that situation was that they used the new international version and not the King James on First Baptist Church of Hammond's. Uh, the article hit the hair a lot harder. <laughs> they said hippie preacher like 30 times. Um, and also alleged Methodist. <laughs> listen, listen, Sadie, I will not have you slander John Wilkerson. He is a hero. He is the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he is redeemed. First Baptist Church of Hammond, don't ever speak poorly of the man who saved that place. He has redeemed it by reducing the membership 80%. Man. I I think it, it really puts into contrast. It's not said in the documentary because it does not need to be said. That's my child screaming. Um, it doesn't, it, it's not said because it didn't need to be said, but it is such a stark contrast, the cowardice of these preachers in the IFB compared to the strength of the documentary subjects. Be- just seeing, uh, Rachel, your pretext phone call that you did 
one of the most brave and badass things I have ever seen on television. Thank you. <laughs> Just incredible. The the guts. I was blown away. Keep in mind that was a 35-minute phone call. Wow. <sighs> so they only included, I don't know, maybe six seconds of it. I had 35 minutes of that footage. <laughs> <sighs> How? <laughs> oh, and this is the other this is the other thing. And again, this is just my selfish reasons. Um, they did not include from my pretext phone call. I was able to get charges for myself. I was able to get charges for April. And then I was able to get charges for one other girl from my phone call with him. Oh, wow. <laughs> you are a fing hero. That's incredible. <laughs> Yes. And it was, it, that was such a wild experience. It, it was from what um, my detective explained to me is it's like, he, manip- he manipulated you. Now it's your turn to do it to him. And so if you approach it, like, I'm pissed off at you. I can't believe you did this. Like, I'm so angry. He's just going to hang up the phone. But if you approach it, So the way I went into it was I was apologizing to him. And I said, I am so sorry that I ever believed April. I can't believe that she'd be saying all this crazy stuff about you. This is just like, you would never do that, right? And he was like, no, like I would never. And I'm like, okay, so it was just me, right? (laughs) And I mean, as soon as he walked right into that, I I knew I had him. And the longer we talked, I mean, he was just... He was just wanting to complain about everything. And I just listened and let him complain and then casually sneaked in a few lines that got him to accidentally admit things. That is so that is so incredible because it puts like your bravery, your guts to put yourself and your emotional safety on the line like that. Yeah. I mean, I def- during that time, I was definitely looking at this like, this is my job that I have to do. I was not letting any of my emotions even get involved because I knew the minute I did, I would not be able to handle it. But if I go into it, like I have a job that I have to get done. And once I get it done, then I can handle everything else. I My mindset just shifted. And so I'm like, I need to get this from him. We need to get this done. And then I'll deal with what's going on in my head. And I mean, it worked because you got him. That's all I wanted. But the the bravery of that, like, compared to the cowardice of Bruce Goddard driving out in his truck, not acknowledging the protest outside of his church. Oh, no. And there was there was plenty of people that yelled at us. I mean, they they included that one guy yelling at us go home. But I mean, that was another like very strange feeling. This was a place I spent 16 something years at. Like my entire youth is spent on this property and I see people driving in that I've known since I was 8 years old and looking at me like I'm the one that did something wrong. And that was such a jarring feeling that I'm like I I used to sit with you like I was in youth group with you. We graduated high school together and this is how I'm being treated. It was it was it was weird. <sighs> I am just in awe that y- that you were able to do that though. That you were able not just to to go back and confront those people at the church, but to have that 35-minute phone call with your abuser. To be able to keep the facade going for that long and not crack under the pressure. I mean, you must have ice water in your veins. I don't know how you <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> that- 
one of the more incredible things that I've ever heard. I'm truly in awe of. Well, you also have to realize there was a lot, there was a lot on the line. And I mean, that's what my detective explained to me too, is like, this is kind of our last ditch effort. Like I don't other like if we don't get this call, we're going to be struggling with how to get a case together to get a warrant to get an arrest. So it's like, not to give you too much pressure, but also you have a lot of pressure on you. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I even like YouTube, like how to do a pretext phone call. <laughs> like, <laughs> do people make YouTube videos about that? I mean, it was just like how to, like how police interrogations work. Like it's all about like getting on their level, using words like we and us, like there's nothing accusatory involved in it. Like, Basically, anything you got to do to make them think we're in this together, we're on the same team, I'm here to help you. I mean, I was even like, you're, you're deleting my, this call, right? You're deleting our messages. Like, I don't want them going through our phones and seeing that we're talking. Like, I had him. That is amazing. <laughs> it's just like, to me, it's, it's the smarts and bravery of you doing that compared to a man who is so up in his own ego that he does not recognize that he is being so manipulated because when he manipulated you you were a little girl you were a child yes and now you as an adult intellectually on an even playing field overtook his his lack of intelligence so easily it seems like it's the the revenge is so sweet even just as a viewer watching it well it was his him thinking that he still, I wanted him to think I'm still under your control. I'm here to help you. And I wanted, I wanted him to think that I wanted him to feel that last moment of, yeah, I still got her. And because I knew that that's my one and only window for any of this to work out. And I cannot mess this up. I remember I hung up and I was like, well, I'm like, I don't know if that's what they were looking for, but I guess we'll find out. And I sent it over to, our detective, he calls me the next morning and he's like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I was like, why? I'm like, did I not do good? I'm like, was it okay? And he's like, this is insane. <laughs> yeah. It is when you were put on an, it, it's the reason that people abuse people that they have power over or people who are much younger and still children. Right. Because once you were an adult and you had something closer to an equal playing field, you did that and f***ing won. You were incredible. Absolutely. This is <laughs> cold-blooded. I can't say enough about that. But it's also a comparison, though, because like your bravery and badassery doing that and Ruthie's bravery, Kathy's bravery, speaking at trials and hearings for their abusers when we look at that on one hand and on the other hand we have the cowardice of these ifb men the cowardice of these abusers it is really a stunning comparison oh absolutely and i also don't i don't want to speak for kathy but i did want to include we did not just get one pretext phone call. Kathy did a pretext phone oh call. And that's how we got Paul's warrant for his arrest. <laughs> wow. <sighs> yeah. So we, and I don't know if it was made known, but Kathy and I had the same detective. So he investigated both of our cases. 
And so, and that's another thing I hope that people was able to take away is that these were cases in mine and Kathy's and April's and Ruthie's. This did not happen a week ago or even a year ago. These were cases some 10, 15 years ago. And first of all, investigating any kind of sexual assault, you rarely ever see any kind of arrest or any kind of prosecution. It's so difficult to prosecute. And now here we are with wins all across the board from cases from 10 plus years ago. And I just hope it's a huge wake up call to law enforcement and um, prosecutors that there's no time limit. It doesn't matter. You never know what you're going to get out of it. And I think we proved that. And while we're talking about uh, bravery and badassery, I'd be remiss not to mention Nanette going into literally the gates of hell in the last episode. Absolutely. Sharon, the director, (laughs) called me like right after they did that. And she's like, we went to First Baptist Church. And originally she had said, like when we had first filmed, she's like, this is it. Like she was filming, a bunch of people went out to Missouri. She's like, I don't think we're going to go to anywhere else. And then like next thing you know, she's like, oh, we just got kicked out of First Baptist Church of Hammond. But yeah, that was amazing. And I, and yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody in this, like, again, it's sitting down and watching it and Sadie, you said this. I mean, there's so many people you know of or you've heard of and talk to them about that experience. And you're just like, oh, like you're like legit a badass. Like this is crazy. The stuff that you've had to do. And, and again, it's one of those, like, it's bittersweet, but like, you know, a lot of these stories, it's like what Rachel says, 10, 15 years pursuing justice that in a lot of cases is two years or probation, or it's, it's a, it's a bittersweet thing, but it's also like, again, it's a, it's a testament, I think, to the the bravery and the commitment to actually seeing the stuff through. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it was incredible, like seeing it all pieced together in that way. The thing that got me with that clip was the we love you at the end. That almost physically made me sick. And yeah. she's like, no, you don't. That felt that that made me so angry. Yeah. It's it's but that's the common thing, right? It's like you're, you know, we'll be praying for you. It's a it's a backhanded thing. And, I and couldn't, yeah, but I couldn't believe they got it in real life on I video. Know. Yeah. I mean, the line, what's the line? There's no hate like Christian love. But that's another example, like the the bravery of Nanette walking walking in there. I don't know if I could walk in that building. I went to First Baptist Church of Hammond. Yeah, I, I was worried about. I know some of the people. I knew people on security at the time, and I was worried for you. I've never gotten to go, and I've I've always wanted to go, and I don't feel like I can now. I feel like I missed the window. You're really not I know, but it's much. something. <laughs> I feel like you'll be very I underwhelmed know. for what it actually is. <laughs> it's not a very like nice. How dare you? Wilkerson has crafted a perfect <laughs> oasis. I'm just kidding. Guys, it's, it's totally different now. <laughs> I mean, it, it is such a, a weird place though, because there it's like, there's this big shiny looking, like there's this brick church building, but it has this like white steeple on it. A Sears. Yeah. Or like a converted yeah. high school or something is the vibe that I get from it. And then it's in Hammond, Indiana, which, you know, <laughs> no hate against Hammond, Indiana, but it's not a very, it's not safe. Not at all. Excuse me. I was born in Hammond, Indiana. <laughs> it's not, the, it's not the nicest place. I toured, um, Hiles Anderson college when I was, uh, 
when I was technically a missionary supported by their ministry. Um, but I was what year? Eric? Uh, that was in two thousand and fifteen, I think. Oh, so you missed me. Oh, okay. On paper, you would think I was more traumatized by the college than the church. But I feel like I could walk back onto college campus and be okay. So we did when we were in, when we were filming in Michigan. um, So I flew into Chicago because April actually lives near there. And so then we all did a road trip from Indiana to Michigan and we made a pit stop by the college and we all walked up and took a picture. We were all in like sweatpants and stuff. And that was my first time being back there, like since I've been gone. And it was a good feeling of like, I don't feel scared. Like, I feel like you would be way more scared to talk to me than. Yeah, you're scary. We've (laughs) learned you're scary. I don't want to get on your bad side. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about Rachel and Sadie's experiences at Hiles Anderson College. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I think these men would not have to put themselves on pedestals the way that they do if they really had the power, the influence, the intelligence, the credibility that they believe they have or that they make out that they have. I mean, what, what's that quote? The quote is that all cruelty springs from weakness. Oh, I like that. Right? That's that's the one. Who said know. that? That's like one of those old timey philosopher quotes that you see uh, on like a, a picture with somebody with the you know, like with a Greek statue on it or something. But so speaking of statues, I thought you guys would really appreciate this. My junior year of college, I left a pair of panties on Jack Hyle's statue on his face. Wait, was your was your junior year beginning in oh your junior year began in 2013 or began in 2012 yes. 2013 oh gosh darn it rachel if you had done that like six months sooner i would have been there well maybe it was it was right after scop so that would have been it was like fall of 2012 or early um 2013 
See, that means I was there. I was just caught up, too caught up in my own drama. Probably. I was quite the troublemaker at Hack. I was there for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> yeah. I have, pl- I have plenty of HAC stories. <laughs> I was I was such a goody two shoes. I was that not. I was like, <laughs> I want to know what like if you're like what what constitutes trouble. So it's not, and it's not even Do any fill hallways with cups of water, Rachel. Wait, that yeah, that was our prank. Were you, was that, <laughs> that was the dorm floor beneath me? It was that I was on rice three. No that was rice two. way, dude! That was the <laughs> best. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was my. You almost played a prank on me in college. Yeah, that was our my sophomore year, I think, and it was my freshman year. They were pissed about that, and yeah, but that was a really good. (laughs) We planned that for weeks. (laughs) So what what happened was it was the dorm floor beneath me, and someone who now I know was Rachel, (laughs) the ringleader, filled the entire hallway of the dorm floor with full cups of water overnight. So the people in the dorm rooms were not able to leave their rooms <laughs> because the hallway was full of full. I thought it was hilarious because it wasn't happening to me. It was hilarious. I think and that's we- a funny prank. That's, <laughs> that's, just, that's like a good natured college dorm prank that you pull when you're in the dorm. What, room, like, right. Yeah. No, that was good though. But I did. But Sadie, that's so funny that you. I didn't realize that you were in the freshman <laughs> dorms that year. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I was. I think in Rice three hundred six. I think was my dorm. Yeah, because we did it. It was whatever. What was floor level? Like we didn't because we couldn't go upstairs because we had the huge trash can full of water. And so, oh, that's how you did it. Yeah. Okay. And we we hid it behind a shower curtain like the night before or like the day of or something. Like it was completely planned. And that is impressive. Yeah. What kind of cups were they? Were they like dining hall hall cups, or was it like solo cups, or yeah, like just like red cups? solo like clear cups. plastic cups? Yeah. Oh, red solo cups. So we had like I don't. I someone worked somewhere, so they were able to get them every night. So they would get the cups every single night for like a month <laughs> and we would hide them under our beds. So it, cause it was going to be for April fools. So then the night of we like all dressed in black, we literally wore like ski masks, like to really commit to the bit. And we went to their floor and we just walked down and like we filled up every single cup full of water. And then they were right next to each other. So it's just like you open your door and you either like step in all this water or you have to like individually pour all of them out. <laughs> and pour them into where? In exactly. like trash cans in your dorm room or what? Yeah. Um, that That is, so the ski mask thing, I wore um, a denim skirt and like a black hoodie. And if I had had a ski mask, I would have worn it when I went crawling through the tunnels under the south hallway. You went in the tunnels? I have been in the tunnels. <gasps> we try. I try. I had friends on security. My dad instigated it. Now that he's dead, I can tell you, my dad instigated it. Oh, <laughs> I wanted to, to go it. in the tunnels so bad. I, I never still can. <laughs> Let's go right now. I'm just <laughs> okay. Kidding. So I am hearing field trip to Hiles Anderson, and I'm going to show y'all how to get in the tunnels <laughs> for legal reasons. This is all a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's so so Rachel for the fellow hacker here. Um there is an entrance 
do you know where the lost and found room is? Was that the potato the room? North, potato room, north side of the chapel? Yeah. There is a matching room on the south side of the chapel that is always locked. Oh, And that okay. room has one entrance to the tunnels. Also, do you remember before they converted the bowling alley to whatever the f*** is now? The pit. Yeah. Yes. As you are coming out of the main hallway where Scop's office was, you make a right into the bo- what used to be the bowling alley. Yes. As you make that right, there's a weird lattice on the wall that doesn't make any sense. Like, why is this here? Yes, yes. That's the other entrance. Oh, okay. I know what you're talking about. Also, it's so funny that you mentioned Scop's office because obviously this was right before he was about to leave. Do you remember when they like completely renovated it? It literally looked like you're in like an embassy suite. Like it was like, so our floor won some prize for something and we got to have ice cream with him. And I so, remember that. I was so mad because I think it was White Glove because I was yes, mad that I didn't win. Yes, R4 won that. And that was very weird. And we, his, his carpet, I want to say it was like a light color. I think it was like a beige color. And they were serving us ice cream. I spilled my entire <laughs> thing of chocolate ice cream all over his brand oh, new no. carpet. And I'm like, you have to distract him. <laughs> So then I had like a wall of friends around me as we're like finding anything we can to clean it up or not make it look like I just spilled chocolate ice cream literally all over your carpet. And I remember he walked up and he said, I don't know, said some stupid joke or something. And I was just like, oh, I just dropped something. It's fine. And I just stood over it and I could not move from that spot because I didn't want him to see I spilled chocolate ice cream everywhere. And then I just left and made it look like someone else did it. But I thought that was really funny. (laughs) I suppose it's easier to cover up a a spot, cover up like a a, a stain if you're wearing a floor length denim skirt. (laughs) Oh, no, No, we weren't allowed to wear denim skirts during (laughs) during school hours. (laughs) Gavi almost gets it and then doesn't and then gets it again. Um, it, it's almost a metaphor, though, like chocolate ice cream spilled on the white carpet. It's like a metaphor for the IFB purity culture, but also all the crimes. Literally, as I'm sitting there it's scrubbing like a his carpet. beautiful metaphorical moment, yeah. What a beautiful segue. I mean, that's, that's an segue. object lesson, if I ever heard mm. one. Mm. Call Heather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a sermon Amen. illustration right there. <laughs> No, I have to ask if we ever did like uh, a like a road trip to Hiles Anderson. Are we going to be singing like fundy children's songs in the car? Are we going to be singing "I Got the Joy, 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 Joy" down it? That- no, <laughs> I I can't listen to church music. That I can't do that. <laughs> so what what is on the playlist for what what do you want on the playlist? Um, it, it, anything that would get you kicked out of there, we need to listen to that. <laughs> like like Coldplay. That's what you were listening to, right, Sadie? I had an iPod full of the most rebellious music that I could think of while I was at Hiles Anderson, which was like Coldplay, Disney songs, and Casting Crowns. I was like the most good kid while I was there. And I really regret it because every time I talked to somebody who was there the same time I was, everybody else was having so much more fun. See, and it's so funny because when I saw that you first started this podcast, I literally thought I'm like, oh, I thought she was like 
a goodie. Like I thought she was like yeah. so bought in. So I was like so shocked to see. I was. Cause like, I, I do remember you from then. And that's probably why we didn't hang out because I thought you would probably tell on me. <laughs> that's what, that's what Amy said. Our mutual friend said yeah. as well, um, which is funny because I would not have told on anybody. I wasn't that much of a hacker. I, and like, I had roommates who were partying. I had so many opportunities. No, I would not have told on anybody. I just would have been a stick in the mud and probably ruined your night. (laughs) (sighs) I was processing this with friends. And one thing that came to mind was I was under the impression that everybody at Hiles Anderson was like my level of rule follower. I thought I was rebellious and breaking all of the HAC rules all the time. I thought I was so bad because I had my secret iPod and like once in a while used internet on my phone that wasn't through the college internet. And I would like read stuff Fundy's like on the internet sometimes. And I thought I was so bad. I like, I didn't, I didn't have movies on my Hiles Anderson issued MacBook, but I knew people who did who would like loan me their MacBook to watch movies. And I thought I was like the most wicked, terrible person ever. I had no idea um, that everybody else was having so much fun. Oh, I had zero guilt with any of that stuff though. <laughs> I truly did you. not care. <laughs> now that this documentary is out, I assume both of you guys have friends who are who didn't grow up in fundamentalism what are they saying to you about this what are their impressions um so i i do have a lot of friends now that are not from that world and i think it's funny that a lot and i don't really talk about i think people like obviously i'm very public about it but also like i don't talk about the church side a whole lot like really ever and so afterwards they were like oh my god how are you so normal (laughs) which First of all, I take that as like the biggest compliment. Um, yeah, but- I was going to say I'm a little jealous. I've never <laughs> been normal. <laughs> but I, like they were just like, you wouldn't have striked me as someone that grew up in church. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I just, I don't know. I never like with when I meet new people, like I'll mention like, oh yeah, I grew up in a church, but like that can mean anything. And so I don't think people really grasp like how aggressive <laughs> that was until seeing the documentary and it's funny hearing it from like fresh ears and eyes of hearing and seeing this of like oh my god like i can't believe they talk about a woman like that and it's just like oh girl you have yeah. no idea or just like I-, I don't know like anything like that with like how we dress and like i just just cuz like i don't lead with like oh yeah like we weren't allowed to go to the movie theaters we weren't allowed to wear shorts or pants we weren't allowed to do this and this and this like I don't know. And I, th- I think that's all like a coping thing too. Like, I just don't like thinking of that because it makes me so sad that that was how we were living. So it is so interesting hearing it from people that have no, no idea of that world and just being like, I had no idea that you ever experienced anything like that. Do you find that validating? It is very validating because it also like, that was my Monday through Sunday. Like it seemed so normal to us. But even now, like watching it, I've been out since I've been out for like 10 years now. And so watching it like now, like hearing just different voices and how they taught, like it's like, no, that was really bad. (laughs) 
like that was our normal and I didn't think it was bad. And then you hear it years later when you've deconstructed so much and you're like, oh no, this is really horrible. And that's really sad that I sat there. But and it's also sad. I think I get sad too that I believed a lot of that. I agreed with a lot of that. And that's why I try to be so patient with people that just leave mean comments or rude or try to defend things. Cause I'm like, I get it. I was you. <laughs> and I, I understand that mindset and you're going to see it one day or you're not, but you're going to have to be the one to figure that out. I can't help you with that. I'm so with you on all of that because there are all these different ways that you can introduce it to new people. You know, you can say, oh, yeah, I was raised really religious or something that I will say a lot is, oh, yeah, my dad was a Baptist, like a strict Baptist pastor. And that's one way to lessen the impact and the questions from the never fundies. Or like if you are wanting to express how severe it was, you can get more into that. Any thoughts, Eric? This the last year, like I said, has been extremely hard. I've lost. I have a very close friend in Vegas that I was talking to about this. And I've talked to my wife about it as well. And she's a close friend. Um, but I feel like I lost a lot of my circle, all of my circle um, after leaving Christianity as a whole. Um, and I know I'm in a place now I need to rebuild that circle and I need a friend group around me and I need people I can talk to. Um, but I also sit there going, I have no interest in building that because in my heart and in my gut, it's all going to end the same way. And I know that's like a, whatever, whatever you want to call it, trauma response, whatever you want to call it. Like I've just been stabbed in the back and the face and many other places by many people over the last several, several years. And um, one of the cool things about the documentary series was getting flown out by a studio to go meet people you've met online, to have these conversations in person, to be able to sit in a random, <laughs> a random dive bar in you know, Michigan with <laughs> Rachel, you know, allegedly stealing potentially mugs <laughs> from the table and with, you know, sitting with people who I truly respect and admire, who understand the background and to be watching the series and in group messages and phone calls. And it was a really beautiful, special thing. And it was something that I know for me over the last year was extremely needed um, because I, I mean, it was a, it's, it's been a really difficult doing preacher boys has been one of the hardest and equally rewarding things I've ever done in my life. And, um, if there, if anything good has come out of it, it's been meeting people like everybody on this call. It's yeah, I absolutely agree. It's a very healing. Again, it's one of those things that's like, if you know, you know, kind of conversations that like only if you grew up the way we did and then able to find like healing and find because there's also some people that they can feel so stuck there and it's like you can't move past it and have fun and I don't know. And I feel like all of us were able to, we can talk about it, but it's still a healthy healing conversation. No, with Never Fundies, like I find that a lot of times their response to what we went through is going to be really validating. But sometimes that response can also be isolating. And I'm I'm really thankful for having all these people who get it. I watched um the first two chapters of the documentary that aired on Friday night. And then it was, I had to wait to watch the second two on Saturday night. And I felt like between 
the two parts, I felt better. At the end of part four, I felt better because there's a, like a triumphant-ish ending. But I felt like for the 24 hours between the first two episodes dropping and the second two episodes. But I texted with Chad Harris, who was a huge part of the Shiny Happy People documentary. And that was somebody who got it. And it, it's so nice to have people who get it. Even as a viewer who wasn't involved in Let Us Pray, I got I had support from people who have been there and who get it. And that's so valuable. I don't know how people did this before the internet. As somebody who has never been a part of fundamentalism, one of the things that I've sort of noticed, that, and I, I think maybe this isn't just to do with fundamentalism, but I think this is to do with other things as well, is that people who have lived as, I want to say, charmed as an existence as I have in that we have never experienced like the the depths of human depravity that people who grew up in high control groups experienced or people who have been truly treated as that horribly have experienced we tend to be dismissive of or we tend to just not understand that monsters like this actually exist and bad and and these things actually happen to a lot of people and that this is very real this isn't just like a rare thing and so it's uh, it's the same sort of thing where there's where i i I kind of compare it to like the type of men who would never commit sexual violence and because they can't imagine ever doing that themselves, they're like, well, obviously rape culture can't exist because I can't imagine somebody ever wanting to do that. Mm-hmm. It, it's really jarring for me seeing how bad it was on TV. Mm. It, yeah. it was kind of a slap in the face, like a wake up call kind of thing. Right. Um, to be reminded of how bad it really was, but I hope it's a wake up call to other people as well, to never fundies who want to be validating and want to be supportive. Uh, And I hope they believe it. And that's one thing I think the documentary did such a good job of. Sometimes I tell my story and people have trouble believing me. It's not because they're calling me a liar. It's not because they're a jerk. It's just because it's so far outside, like Avi was saying, so far outside their experience. The documentary was so believable because it is true. Right. And I hope that's other people's experience with the content as well. Well, they can't. It's one of the reasons I have empathy for people who even, I mean, again, all of us, well, three of us on this call were in a position where we at one point were on the other side. and. I think it's easier to believe it's a satanic attack or it's an accusation or it's fill in the blank than it is to actually fathom that your spiritual leader is doing this stuff. It's, but again, the, the word I can use to describe, let us pray is like, it's undeniable at this point. And it's one of the things I'm really happy midway through production, because I help send a lot of clips and direct them to certain things. And there was a period where one of the studios involved and one of the hands that were on it, they didn't want the risk of using sermon clips. They didn't want the liability and the legal pressure of trying to clear all these clips. And there was a short, short period where 
they were trying to figure out how to communicate it without, like, if we can't use this clip of Jack Hiles, if we can't use this clip of this, how do we tell this story? And I really think you can't tell it without showing it out of the horse's mouth. Like, here's what they actually said. Here are the things that they actually screamed from the pulpit. And I think that's why when you walk away from the documentary, it's like, you can say it's a hit piece. You can say it's this. You can say it's that. But like, Jack Hiles said those things that you heard. And you see Mm -hmm. him say it. And that is incredibly powerful and, again, undeniable. And it's validating for the people who question, like, was this as crazy as I thought? And, like, I think, Rachel, when we talked right after the second episode, it's like, oh, this is crazy. <laughs> like, this is really bizarre stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that's also one of the things that makes it harder for outsiders to think, oh, people actually believe this. Like, what's the... It's the clip that we used when we talked about pastor school that showed up in the dock with the which pastor was it that smashed the TV with the axe? Larry Brown. Larry Brown. Brown. Yeah, Larry Brown, where he was he was telling the story about how you smash the TV with the axe because uh, to to you know scare your family into doing what you want or I think that's what he was talking about if if I recall correctly. Uh, that's what 99% of sermons are about. So I was there, but I don't remember what he was on about. I just remember him smashing the TV. As an outsider, I watched this and I'm like, this guy is like, is, is like half a step away from like bringing out a bucket of snakes and like trying to like snake charm them in front of everybody to prove how holy he is or whatever. And just, I mean, it's, it's almost sideshow esque in some cases. And for us to be like, wait, this is church. You you go to church and you see this just this this lunacy here, and and you believe this, and that makes it harder for people to really empathize with that. No, it's funny that because I kind of forgot until you mentioned the TV thing. Because when I saw some my friends that are not in this at all, and she said like, oh my god, I can't believe like they smashed a TV. And my husband and I looked at each other. We're like, oh yeah, like it's like well, duh, like. <laughs> us that was like such a theatrical like normal like everyone knows that's what you that's what he did where in their eyes it's like they were like i cannot believe that he would do that and it's like those little moments and kind of like what you just said like where we realize like that's not normal (laughs) that is so freaking weird (laughs) when jack hiles threw the fillet of fish out of a helicopter uh at (laughs) Uh, was that at spring? That was at a youth conference. That was at a youth conference way before any of our time. We talked about that on the show, like back in, I want to say like early 2021. It was when my dad was still around because my dad had told me that story. He was there for it. So it happened sometime between 83 and 93 at a youth conference. That Jack Hiles got up in a helicopter and threw a bunch of filet of fish sandwiches out of the helicopter to to feed the people because it was a feeding of the five thousand stunt. <laughs> Jesus did the same thing almost exactly. Yeah, with a helicopter. <laughs> Saint Peter was piloting it. <laughs> Very new to this world at the point, and Sadie's telling me that, and I'm like, "There's no <laughs> f- way that this man threw filet of fish out of a helicopter." And that's like a church service. But that's what I love about the fact, I was telling you guys this before we hit record, um, that's what I loved about the fact that the people who made this had no experience in this denomination. It was my biggest fear going into it was, are they going to miss those little things, which 
they didn't. And it's like, but my other thing was like, it's so cool that they are seeing this with fresh eyes. So like I joked about the swallowing goldfish, but they were so blown away by that. And like, it was literally something that I just kind of said as like an aside, like, you know, they do this, it's swallow goldfish. They do <laughs> and every like other <laughs> sentence was like, wait, 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 what did they do? And then like all of those things like that are just a given for us. It's like, oh my God, like every, it was like constant, just they did what they said, what, who did this? Like it, it was, and again, it's one of those things like I realize almost every, like every couple months, I realize this other massive thing that was so crazy that I never realized. It literally happened to me like two weeks ago. I was just telling someone a story and I was like, oh my God, that's like not good. To me, <laughs> did you ever like- swallow a goldfish, Eric? Oh, yeah, Eric. Oh, my God. No, they could never get me to. Oh, I was I did. never a good enough Christian soldier. You're the only one, Rachel. They tried really hard um, to get me to do it, and I flat out refused. I've seen it done a hundred yeah. times, though. They tried to get me to eat earth. They tried to get me to eat earthworms, and they tried to get me to swallow goldfish. And I was like, I will do so many things. <laughs> I will never do that. Like if they put you on fear factor. <laughs> oh, hell no. Good for you, though, Rachel. You collected a little piece of fundy experience. <laughs> In my defense, it was because I really liked my bus captain and I thought, oh, yeah. I'm going to impress him and I'm going to swallow a goldfish and then he'll ask me out. And that unfortunately really never beautiful. happened. <laughs> oh. So speaking of Larry Brown, Rachel, you would have been there. There was this other Larry Brown sermon. He came in during that 2012-2013 school year between Scop being in jail before they hired Wilkerson. Remember, there were a lot of guest preachers? Yes, yes. Do you remember the Larry Brown sermon where there was a college student falling asleep, like, on the second row of the main section closest to the orchestra, and he yelled at this guy and, like, made him stand up and run around? Do you remember that one? And that, I was sitting the next section, I was sitting right behind the Cowlings row, so you know exactly where I was sitting. That's another thing. They loved like public humiliation. Yep. Like calling people out in the middle of a church service or of a chapel. I mean, it's just so sad. Like this, it, it ugh, like I hate thinking about that. They like got off with public humiliation. Yes. It's about their power. It is a power thing. And that would never be normal but like between you and me talking about it, we were both there. We both yes. saw it happen. And at the time, it seemed like, oh, that's a little unusual. But it wasn't anything to write home about. Yeah. Which is it's so sad. It was just uncomfortable. And now being out in the real world, you look back at that and holy, that was weird. That was not okay. I think the documentary did hit such a sweet spot for me because it didn't sensationalize it didn't make these things bigger or more extreme than they were. Because you don't it have to. It was a very <laughs> exactly. honest. You don't have to. It was a very honest look at the extremity of the IFB. It didn't sensationalize the sexual assault survivors who told their stories. It didn't make your stories any bigger or crazier than they were. It just let you tell them in the extremity in which they happened in real life. And that was that was something that I really appreciated about Let Us Pray. 
I do wish that they'd had Rachel say, yeah, I got on the phone and totally manipulated this dude into... <laughs> I mean, but. you looked really badass in the documentary, but <laughs> I would have loved to see more. Of it. But what what you were just saying too, I I, I just love that they kept the focus on the survivor's story, and I also feel like it made it very what was produced and what was seen. It makes it very difficult to get angry at that because it was again not nothing was dramatic nothing was sensationalized and also what we shared is literally the tip of a huge iceberg and so if anyone mm-hmm. is offended at this little tiny tip it's like you realize what else could have been said yeah. and how many names could have been included and how in my opinion easy dave hiles got off in that and that could have been a hell of a lot more that could have come out about him. Oh, yeah. And so well, it's like, I mean, all of that, like you, you guys got off. I mean, that was a hard hit to you, but it's still, that was just the beginning. Well, and I mean, even just the stories, I mean, Rachel, you were there for Ruthie's, um, for the sentencing hearing that there's things from that. I mean, hearing, Oh, I know you don't hear from Aaron Willand. You don't hear, you know, I mean, Ruthie was called as a, witness yeah she had to testify without knowing and so she goes in ready to give a victim impact statement and she's called to the stand and has to recount abuse from aaron willand with camera crews Uh. there with a group of people there in the audience of the courtroom and it's like i was in tears the whole second part of the series but when that scene came on as powerful as that scene is, and it is because her victim impact statement is so freaking incredible. Um, and I'm glad they closed it out on that. Like I had a pit in my stomach remembering yeah. that experience. And, I, and it's like stuff like that. People don't realize like my, my interview with Ruthie um, in that series, that interview, like I was talking to her about it in that first time meeting her. And it's like, it was months later before we're sitting in that courtroom. And our conversation then was, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if the justice system's going to come through. I'm emailing them and not getting responses. And it's like the hell and the, the things that people are dragged to to get that moment that is so uplifting and incredible is like heartbreaking. And there's no way, even with 20 episodes, there's no way you could capture all that stuff. Yeah, the incredible bravery to put that out there. Right. To start the process going through the justice system, not knowing what the outcome is going to be. That's something that I just have to sit back and respect and admire. So something I just, I want to say real quick, um, because it's a comment I see a lot and I know people mean absolutely well, but I notice myself and other survivors, it can be a trigger sometimes where you don't realize how, I mean, you do now, you get a glimpse of how much work it is to have to be able to get a warrant, to be able to get an arrest, to be able to get a conviction. It's so much work that you put yourself out there for. And example, my abuser was only given five years for seven different felonies against children. And I remember after it first happened, seeing like only five years, why would he only get five years? I can't believe it's only five years. I took that as like a personal insult that like Mm. I didn't do something. I should have done more to get him more time or something. 
And then it was the same with the friend of, well, it was with, um, in the Giovanelli case where it, she went through freaking hell to be able to get what he got. And yeah, he only got a year, but it's like, that's a win. The win to us is they said they did it. They pled guilty. It is no longer having to prove that I'm telling the truth. They, you know, now that I'm telling the truth. And so that is my justice. The sentence, I, I mean, I'll have to deal with that some other time, but just be happy that I got what I got. And so I just want people to know that, like, I know not everyone is probably like that, but I know I can be, and I know other people can be where if you focus on just the sentence, it feels like it's cheapening the work that Mm. I had to go through to get that sentence. Yeah. I appreciate that perspective. I think that's, that's huge. Cause I know that's something it's, it's easy to get frustrated and focused on the time span but I love that perspective of it's your side of the stories out there and it's proven true. I think that's huge. Um, yeah. I love that perspective. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that perspective because when, when you think about it, you did so mm-hmm. much to get the five-year sentence that you got for your abuser. Yes. You went so far. And you've told us even more than we saw in the documentary on this podcast. You did an incredible job. And yes, we can say, oh, he deserved more. I wish he had gotten longer. But that does not mean it's not a win. It's a travesty in its own right, yeah. And I hope you keep on winning. And I hope all the other survivors like you keep on winning. Because we love to see everyone Absolutely. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Rachel and Eric, for giving us your time and giving us your stories, both on the documentary and on this episode. I feel like as an IFB survivor, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the two of you, to everyone else involved in the making of the documentary, because you, you made that for so many reasons. You made it for yourselves. You made it for me and for people like me. You made it for people who don't know the horrors of the IFB. And for the part of that that was for me and people like me, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Sadie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that was great. Great game to talk to all of you. Podcast or not, it was a great conversation. And um, yeah, it means a lot to me. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thankful I decided to change